Hi, this is Daniel James, and this is the podcast of Triple R's The Mission, a weekly radio show exploring the issues that impact the lives of Aboriginal people and those at the wrong end of social justice in this country. The Mission is broadcast live on Triple R each Tuesday evening. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website. Good evening. Welcome to episode 00007 of The Mission. My name is Daniel James. I'm your host through till late tonight. I'd like to start off by acknowledging the traditional owners of the land on which I am broadcasting from, and that is the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. I pay my respects to their elders past, present and emerging. Now, um, straight up, if there's any mob listening tonight, there's um, some news pertaining to the uh, treaty process, in particular the election process to the First People's Assembly. The uh, period for enrolment to vote and to nominate has um, been extended. So if you want to vote or you want to nominate yourself as a candidate, uh, last week the uh, Victoria Advancement Treaty, sorry, the Victorian Treaty Advancement Commission um, announced that they're actually extending the period for that. So there is an updated schedule and that updated schedule is now um, you have an opportunity to nominate as a candidate up until Friday the 16th of August for 4pm and the voting period will be actually between the Monday the 16th of September to Sunday the 20th of October. So um, all those enrolment period, that enrolment period and the candidate nomination period is open and you have until the 16th of August to nominate as a candidate and then you start voting between the 16th of uh, September and the 20th of uh, October. And so if you want to nominate as a candidate, go to firstpeoplesvic.org um, forward slash candidate nominations and so sort of any information around the um, election process or the treaty advancement process, just go to firstpeoplesvic.org. Um, I guess it's a little unsettling. It obviously means that there isn't enough enrolments or nominations. This is... Um, Got to remember, this is a, a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity, so if you're mob out there, and you, you, you've got to get along to enrol. The winds of history only fill our sails, but uh, rarely so, without being too, uh, just too um, poetic or um, dour about it. Uh, this is a real opportunity, and um, uh, everyone's watching us because we're the ones that are actually taking the first step. Now, um, to tonight's show, uh, thanks to... Uh, to Nick for uh, for uh, letting it uh, cut out of the bag that it's actually my birthday today and um, I can't think of a better way to actually um, <laughs> spend it than here with you this evening over the next hour and it obviously means that um, I have two stellar guests. So shortly in the studio I'll be yarning with a uh, fellow Yorta Yorta man, Jaja Wrong, Wrong man, uh, Luke Birchall, the first Aboriginal cardiologist in the land and we'll be talking um, Aboriginal heart health, an important issue that really doesn't get enough um, attention. And uh, later in the hour, I'll be speaking with uh, Gallimarie woman, uh, Natalie Crom. Um, you've probably read some of her work. She's um, a regular contributor to Indigenous X, NITV and Crikey. And it's for Crikey that she has written a piece on the clash of the legal system against the values of Aboriginal people um, and communities and individuals. And um, I guess there's been no more stark case in uh, recent events than the issues around the copyright of the Aboriginal flag. So I'll be speaking to her about that. She's written an excellent piece for Crikey 
on that. So we'll talk to Nat. Um, so another good show, methinks. Uh, the best way to connect with me is via Twitter, and my Twitter handle is uh, Mr. DT James at. Uh, yeah, at Twitter, I guess. There's no at. It's M-R-D-T James. Uh, so without further ado, let's get the, the show on the road. Triple R on FM, digital, online, via the app. This is the uh, mission on Triple uh, R 102.7 FM. Uh, so it's time for our uh, first guest this evening. Um, like uh, non-Aboriginal um, uh, like average, non-Aboriginal Australians, heart disease is the number one cause of death and uh, disability globally and the leading contributor to that gap, uh, sorry, the leading contributor to the health gap between um, Indigenous and non-Indigenous Australians. So uh, tonight's guest is the first um, Aboriginal cardiologist in the land. He is a proud Yorta Yorta Jha Jha Wurrung man. Luke Birchall's research and clinical leadership in the fields of adult congenital heart disease, cardiac disease in pregnancy and heart failure is recognised internationally. Luke works as a clinical cardiologist at Royal Melbourne Hospital and as a clinician clinician researcher at the University of Melbourne. And uh, he's here in the studio with me now. Luke, welcome to Triple R. Thank you. It's good to be here. Now, we should probably... Off the bat, just um, ask, how does a um, Yorta Yorta boy slash Jaja Wurrung lad become a cardiologist? Well, you get there by working your little mum off. <laughs> That's how you get there. <laughs> and um, I don't know what the Koori equivalent of a tiger mum is, but I had that. Right. Um, Marlene, Marlene Atkinson Birchill. Mm-hmm. Um, she... Well-renowned within the community. That's right. She... Uh, instilled in my sister and I a belief that we could achieve whatever we wanted to. Yeah. And um, I chose to be a doctor. Um, I was thinking about being a minister for a time because when I was uh, five, I thought that it looked good to wear that large gown that they wore. Yeah, right. Yeah, but then I got over the gowns. You dodged a bullet there. And I think the next major figure, <laughs> that's right, it was, it was smart. Um, I've always been good at predicting trends. <laughs> um, so I think the next uh, major influence was actually our GP who used to come and visit our house because I grew up with my nan, Nanny Iris, who was a paraplegic, and she lived with us uh, for significant periods of time in the year. And we had a Dr Graham Jones, the local GP, used to come in and I could see that this was a job where you really could impact yeah. a person and a family and a community. Yeah. Um, we should uh, uh, let the listeners in that uh, uh, Luke and I share uh, common ancestry. Uh, we both uh, share the same great-grandfather, Shadrach James, who is, um, uh, was a bit of a legend in his own right so and studied at the university of melbourne he studied medicine at the university and i walk i was just walking through there today on the uh cobblestones and the same retracing his steps exactly i should uh, let listeners know also that luke's a very good looking man so um not a coincidence um (laughs) okay now to now to serious (laughs) serious matters um aboriginal people are 1.8 times more likely to die from heart disease why? What are the factors? 
So we're still trying to understand the factors, but the research that I'm doing at the university is based upon the hypothesis that the reason for these disparities is because simply we're not providing the right care at the right time to the right people. Yeah. We know that from research in different regions around the country that um, only 50% of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people actually get assessed in terms of their heart risk. And then we know that even if you get that risk assessment, there's only about a 50% chance that you're going to get evidence-based care. That is things like blood pressure and cholesterol-lowering medications. And so also contributing to that is the is the the gap in life expectancy that that we have and so we have people that are dying on average you know 10 to you know 12 years younger than um, the non-aboriginal population and so people are at risk of developing serious heart disease at a, at a younger age and the system isn't geared around to geared to, to screening those those people that's right so in our community heart disease occurs earlier it progresses faster it's associated with more uh, comorbidities, so things like diabetes, kidney disease, and it's associated with poorer health outcomes. Mm-hmm. And that's why Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people are 70% more likely to die from um, heart-related or circulation-related diseases. Um, the, I think the medical profession as a whole is still trying to come to terms with how historical factors and, and intergenerational trauma actually impact on the lives of people today. It's a um, something that Aboriginal people and advocates within the community have been pushing for a long time, saying, listen, you've got to, listen, you've got to realise that uh, racism and um, repression and, um, and a poor treatment over generation after generation is going to have a lasting impact. Do you think that the, the, the medical profession is getting close to being able to, you know, formally recognise that and, and take that into account when treating Aboriginal people? I think that there's a growing interest in terms of research but I think we're a long way off seeing that translate to your or my visit to the GP yeah. and even further off from that translating to the experience we might have in a hospital. Yeah. Um, you know, I think that this is another example where if you take and privilege Indigenous perspectives, we have a lot to share because our notion of uh, community and family, it's about these life cycles Mm. And it's not just about, you know, our physical bodies, it's about our spiritual bodies. And we know that our ancestors and what is passed down to us is really important. Yep. And that relates back to this notion of intergenerational trauma. And I think it does manifest in terms of cardiovascular disease for sure. And, and that, that trauma continues when we have people dropping dead at the age of 35, 45. We've got people that have a lived experience that um, are dying before they have the actual opportunity to become elders and pass that lived experience down to, to the next generation. We're losing our cultural assets. Yeah. Um, we're at risk of losing a whole generation of emerging elders because of heart disease. So, you know, this isn't just an abstract research question. I think that this needs to be a priority for, for Aboriginal um, health and we need to think a little bit more 
uh, generally than we have been when we think about cardiovascular disease. Uh, I guess growing up on the streets of Marupna and seeing people die well before their time from, you know, sudden death you know, related to the heart disease was something that spurs you on to this very day? Absolutely. I mean, um, you know, I was on the wards last week at Royal Melbourne Hospital. There are still people coming in, Aboriginal and non-Aboriginal, and it's a tragedy when people lose their lives. Um, you know, someone's at the gym, within 24 hours, they're dead. Yeah. And usually there are a range of missed opportunities uh, prior to that death. That is, why didn't we recognise the risk? Could we have done something in treating that blood pressure, helping someone to stop smoke, manage the cholesterol, get the blood sugar under control? These are all things that we're complacent about and unfortunately we're waiting for events and some of them are terminal events before we act. I I think there's a thing too down south here in, in Victoria, you know, doctors actually... GPs receive, you know, cultural awareness training and during their, their period of training. But there still seems to be that misconception that the, a Aboriginal person from Alice Springs is an Aboriginal person, but an Aboriginal person from, say, Fitzroy or, dare I say, Docklands, who doesn't actually look like um, the, the traditional notion of what an ab- Aborigine should look like doesn't get asked the questions and so it's up to the patient to in many ways drive that consultation. Yeah we've got some big issues with identification we know that in the southern states um, there is a general under representation of Aboriginal people it starts at that front desk at the hospital when you're in the emergency department at that glass window or whether you when you're checking into your GP it is really important for us to identify because that's how we're going to start to understand why um, outcomes are different and also investigate, is treatment different if you're Aboriginal, Mm -hmm. if you're a Victorian Aboriginal person? We think that it is, there's evidence that it is, but we need to know why so that we can address it. I guess the the cultural appropriateness of, you know, institutions like hospitals is, is really important. And I used to be quite cynical myself about, like, there being the Aboriginal flag you know flying out the front of front of the building and it wasn't until you know I had direct experience with um the hospital setting through my father's illness that I realized that flag provides me a lot of comfort as 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 I walk in um the reason I mentioned the flag is because I'm having a conversation with Natalie Crom later on about who owns the flag but um I would say out of all the settings within the health system I would say hospitals have probably done the most to actually change the cultural appropriateness of of their institutions. Would you agree? I agree, but do you think that flying the flag comes with a greater responsibility than what it may have come with even 10 years ago? Yeah, I think um, the risk, you know, we live in the day of reconciliation action plans and my view of reconciliation action plans is it actually can result in um, a cop-out you know, a cop-out for uh, organisations and institutions to say, OK, we've got a reconciliation action plan, we're doing things about, you know, reconciliation. But it can also be um, a tick-the-box exercise. So at its, at its worst, having an Aboriginal flag outside a hospital is just that, just a tick-the-box exercise. Um, the, the, the care that translates after that is, of course, the most important thing. And I was fortunate with 
dad is that, you know, Echuca Hospital has um, a, a dark history with Aboriginal people, but it has learned from those lessons. And um, because of the population up there, deals very well um, with Aboriginal people now. So that was his experience. But I take your point. Um, you know, I think the catch cry to, of today's millennials is all about authenticity. Yeah. And I don't think they're going to let us off the hook on that one. <laughs> and so organisations like hospitals, um, you know, how do they evolve and answer that call to action to be more genuine and be more authentic. My experience, um, having just joined Royal Melbourne Hospital in this last year, is that there is a genuine uh, willingness to engage on the question of how do we better serve Aboriginal communities. Mm -hmm. And that involves answering some hard questions and dealing with some difficult truths. Yeah. But I'm really impressed with this core nucleus of people that are driving the Reconciliation Action Plan at um, Royal Melbourne. It has not been easy. There have been setbacks. Yeah. But it's, you know, through... Actually, sometimes you need that tension to result in something that is genuine and that is meaningful. Yeah, I think um, what we see a lot of the time is is actually Aboriginal people that drive these processes and, and instigate the change and force people to have the, the, those very awkward conversations. And I think um, Royal Melbourne, St Vincent's um, in particular, have done a great job at sort of instituting some of that change. Still a long way to go, of course, and it's an ongoing conversation because uh, we're becoming more and more familiar with some of the issues. We still don't fully understand um, uh, Aboriginal heart health and, and the, the factors that imp- impact on that. Um, but uh, uh, things are heading in the right direction. And this amazing thing has happened at Royal Melbourne. It's just turned out that there are a number of Aboriginal physicians and trainee doctors there currently. So, you know, it gives me great hope. But I do want to just call out Glenn Harrison because he's been working on this over many, many years. He developed an Indigenous internship program at Royal Melbourne Hospital. This year we have four applicants. Wow. Four Indigenous medical graduates. We have... 15 years ago, I would have scoffed at you. We have the first Australian um, Aboriginal stroke neurologist... Of course. Uh, ..in training, and we have another um, woman who is doing her surgical training. It's a... Look, it's a really amazing time to be part of this community and seeing these successes. Yeah. Their, their success is built on the back of a lot of people that weren't able to um, achieve that success, but we're there for them to, to get them... get that leg up for them. Exactly. Um, I want to touch on uh, rheumatic heart disease. We were talking about this outside in the green room. It's a, it's a third world condition and yet it still exists um, in Australia, most prominently in the Northern Territory with almost every case there being that of an, an, an Aboriginal person. And in fact, the, the Aboriginal people in the NT are actually 69 times more likely to have RHD than non-Aboriginal people. Um, it's 2019. Um, how is this allowed to happen? Well, I think we all recognise that it shouldn't be allowed to happen in this country. Yeah. But unfortunately, despite great efforts, it still continues to happen because, uh, again, coming back to uh, being genuine and authentic, have we really addressed and started to identify what the underlying issues are? This isn't a problem that can be fixed with penicillin alone. No. 
Um, I think that we all recognise that. Um, so for people that, that don't know, this is a, an inf- it's caused by an infection with a bug called Group A Streptococcus. It causes some confusion in your immune system and your immune system starts to attack your heart and your body and it can lead to problems with heart function and also valve problems and it leads to early um, complications and death. It is a problem that we see in a lot of remote and rural communities and you know I think that there are a lot of national initiatives focused on that but Mm. I do always try to bring attention to taking a broader view of cardiovascular disease because it's actually ischemic heart disease it's coronary disease that's killing the Victorian Aboriginal community and actually if you look at the national statistics it's ischemic heart disease that's cholesterol in your coronaries blockages in your coronaries that's causing our people to die prematurely and that's where you come in that's where I come in. And then I've also got this uh, other hat I wear, which is congenital heart disease. That is people that were born with heart disease. Um, we tend to be uh, the forgotten uh, community within the cardiac world, but it's um, an area that I'm really passionate about. These are the young adults that I see that were born with a heart condition and who are getting on with their lives but who really need lifelong care. And fortunately for me, I've joined the Royal Melbourne Adult Congenital Program where we see over 3,500 people, young adults with congenital heart disease, um, you know, trying to improve their outcomes every day. So um, before I let you go, I'll ask you questions. I mean, you were you were telling me outside that you were sort of pressured into perhaps moving into the public health sphere if you wanted to do something about, you know, cardiovascular disease amongst the Aboriginal community. Um, Just on public health, do you think that uh, there is enough being done within the public health setting to actually target Aboriginal communities and individuals around these issues? Well, yeah, let me say heart health is public health. One in four... Um, Australians unfortunately are going to die from um, heart disease or stroke. Yeah. So I think that we're all aware of the initiatives, the public health campaigns. So I do recommend everyone go and get their heart health check. If you haven't done it, go online, talk to your GP, particularly if you're over 45 or if you're a Koori, if you're 35. Yeah. Um, I think that we could do more, though, in terms of our community engagement I think participatory research where this is co-designed public health interventions, um, that's the way to go. And again, it actually reflects what Indigenous people would have recommended, you you know, years ago. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) Well, our time here is uh, done. It's flown by. Um, Thank you so much for coming in. It's good to to, uh, connect with you. Best it's of been luck. A pleasure. Best of luck with your work. Might get you in um, again some other time for for a lengthier conversation. But um, Luke Birchall, thank you very much for coming in. Thank you. You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R, exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics, and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform. Um, I hope you enjoyed the conversation with uh, with Luke. Um, all of these conversations and every episode is available on the website, rrr.org.au, so you can go back and you can go back and listen to the conversation I had with Uncle Bruce Pascoe last week. That seemed to go down all right because he's a fascinating character. And so is our next guest. 
Um, the Aboriginal flag has been in the news a lot in recent days, pri- primarily who owns it and who has access to it. And so our second and final guest this evening has written a fantastic piece for, for Crikey entitled Aboriginal Flag Copyright Deal Betrays Indigenous Culture. And in that uh, piece, uh, Gamala Ray woman Natalie Crom argues the legal system in Australia is completely out of touch with Indigenous culture and its preference for collective ownership. Natalie herself um, is a lawyer and a political writer for numerous print and online media sources, including um, Indigenous X, Crikey, NITV and Independent Australia, just to name um, a few. And she's online with us now. Natalie, welcome to Triple R. Thanks for having me. How are you? Yeah, I'm good. How are you? I'm good, thanks. <laughs> Work gets around, doesn't it? It really does. Can't escape it. I was going to try and fly under the radar, but there you go. What can you do? Uh, <laughs> first of all, can you give us a, a general overview of what the issue is around um, the Aboriginal flag at the moment? People may have seen it in the news but haven't had a close look at it. There's um, issues around copyright and ownership. Can you just give us an update or an overview of what those issues might be? Yeah, sure. So the flag designer, Aboriginal man Harold Thomas, <clears throat> um, has given an exclusive licence to a Queensland-based non-Indigenous corporation, Wham Clothing, to produce um, flag-related products. They've been sending cease and desist letters to all sorts of organisations throughout the country to um, either cease producing anything that features the Aboriginal flag um, or to engage with them as far as royalty payments. Um, The issue, of course, is that, historically speaking, there are a lot of people from the old ASIC days that have come out and said that Harold Thomas initially was paid a lot of money for that design um, in order for Aboriginal people to use it far and wide. Since then, obviously, he's um, had some licensing arrangements and this is the most recent one. Um, and he obviously there's the the counter argument that as a designer he's entitled to uh, royalties for his intellectual property, um, but then of course the converse side of that entitlement under the Australian law is that it it flies in the face of community values. Yeah, it's um it's obviously very problematic and, and troubling and actually distressing for a lot of. Uh, Aboriginal people because, uh, you know, that flag is now so intertwined with um, our sense of identity. I I know that any memory I have of, you know, my mob gathering or, you know, cultural events is is seen through the filter that that the the colours in that flag actually um, give us. And so what you're arguing in um, your piece for for Crikey is... um, that Australian law and intellectual property law in particular just doesn't deal with that sense of collective ownership that um, Aboriginal people feel around this and other issues. Yeah, exactly right. So, I mean, a lot of work's been done in this space by a really respected lawyer, Terry Janke, who has done a lot of the foundational and infrastructure work to set up some semblance of intellectual property um, protection for Aboriginal people, and she, you know, she's coined the term Indigenous cultural intellectual property. Um, mm. And 
her, I guess her foundational work was around getting some recognition for Aboriginal people who were being, I guess, unscrupulously ripped off by the people that would go out to communities, purchase the artworks for, you know, a fraction of the price that they then hang them in Melbourne and Sydney and make thousands off per piece. So um, I understand and, and agree with the premise that we obviously have to protect Aboriginal um, and Torres Strait Islander intellectual property rights, mm. but it's it's not in step with our kinship structures, our responsibility to community and community ownership, because even though the artist itself um, themselves has the intellectual property rights for the work that they create, the images, the stories, and all of the intertwined kinship into those pieces comes from the community, comes from their upbringing. So it's a really difficult legal terrain to navigate. And that's and that's where, you know, that sense of cultural identity actually, you know, clashes head on with, with the legal system because in cases like this, the legal system predominantly supports um, structures, as you write in your article, established to ensure market, trade and profit and doesn't yeah. take into account, um, you know, culture, history or you know, people's feelings, I guess. Yeah, yeah, exactly right. And, I mean, the sense that I got from a lot of mob online when this story broke, and we mentioned here that Curry Mail were the first um, publication to, to break this story. Yeah. Um, when this first broke, everyone was... There was a sense of betrayal. Um, not, that, not that, you know, Harold doesn't have... The, the right to receive royalties for his intellectual property, but the fact that there's such a... I guess there's such a betrayal in the sense that he has, he has given the exclusive licence, which means no other company has the right to, to do anything unless they engage with Wham Clothing, to this corporation who um, is co-owned by um, someone that was involved in a company that was sanctioned by, I think it was ACCC for misleading and deceptive conduct because they were mass-producing Aboriginal art, artwork out of Indonesia and selling it as authentic. Yeah, I saw that. And that's um, that's a, um, a tide of the sort of cultural appropriation that is still yet to be, um, a, you know, you know, fought well. It is being fought back against, but it's something that still, you know, streams through through markets um, around the country. Is that sort of a cultural appropriation of, you know, the idea of um, boomerangs and <clears throat> you know dot art and the like just being produced elsewhere and not by Aboriginal people? Yeah. Um, and I mean, I mean, the, the mediums themselves don't belong to the artist, although the artist has created the work and deserves to be rewarded in the Australian capitalist sense of receiving royalties under their legal intellectual property rights, the, the stories and the medium itself comes from community. So, so there's sort of a, um, an internal friction there where the, the individual artist needs to be authentic to their culture by making sure that they're taking care of their community with the, the royalties they receive, I suppose. Yeah, absolutely. I think um, Ken White's made some noises in recent days that he is looking at options to perhaps intervene in this. Is, has there been any developments on that recently? Um, 
I I haven't heard exactly what what is envisaged, but, but there's been some outlandish claims that the government should purchase the rights to it and that sort of thing. Which that would work beautifully, wouldn't it? Oh, <laughs> it just demonstrates how completely out of touch with the entire messaging um, around this issue and every issue that affects us. Let's, you know. The government, the government can step in, you know, and take care of everything because the white saviors come to the party and fix all of our problems, right? <laughs> there's, there's a, there's a black comedy sketch in this, surely. There really is. There's got to be. <laughs> um, if we can't laugh, we've got to cry. <laughs> You've, um, you're, um, I want to just touch on you for a second. You're a prolific writer, and um, you're a beautiful writer. One of the things I want to say about um, this argument and. And, and your article and, and most of your articles, well, all of your articles, is that a lot, a lot of people can write really compelling, succinct um, arguments that um, uh, read well and are digestible. Um, you do that, but you also do it in um, a way where, where the writing's actually, you know, beautiful. It flows beautifully. It reads beautifully. Um, so I just wanted to give you kudos for that because... A lot of people can write articles and churn them out, but uh, not many people can um, um, write them as, as well as you do. So I um, just want to give you um, a tip of my hat for that. Thank you very much. <laughs> no sweat. Um, thank you so much for your time. I've been speaking with um, Natalie Crom about the Aboriginal flag. If you want to read her piece, it's in um, uh, Crikey. It's called Aboriginal Flag Corporate Deal Portrays Indigenous Culture. Um, and if you want to read any of the other stuff, just Google her name, really, um, and you'll find it. But, you know, a lot of her work is, um, as with mine, is, in, is Indigenous X, which is a totally Aboriginal-run and owned um, media outlet that is doing great things and giving um, a lot of voice to a lot of Aboriginal people around the country. So check them out. Thanks so much for your time, Natalie. Really, really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Triple R. Well, that's uh, basically it now for, for, for the mission. I uh, hope you've enjoyed the program with uh, Luke and Natalie. You can listen to it on demand via the website rrr.org.au. Now, some people have, um, um, without authorization, mentioned that it is actually my birthday. And there's actually a bit of um, James Household uh, folklore uh, around this that uh, the, the evening I was... Uh, born, um, my old man uh, came home and uh, played a uh, record and um, it just so happens that I have that uh, record here and I'd like to uh, send this one out to my sister and my mother who are uh, listening out um, in Yamurka on Yorta Yorta land. But um, until next week, um, stay good and um, I'll speak to you then. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's The Mission a weekly radio show exploring the issues that impact the lives of Aboriginal people and those at the wrong end of social justice in this country. The mission is broadcast live on Triple R every Tuesday evening. Hope you've enjoyed the podcast and feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website.